Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Invisibility Today podcast. I'm your tiny disabled host, Laura Elliott. Today I'll be speaking to Gail, an activist from the direct action campaigning group Disabled People Against Cuts, about their ongoing campaign against universal credit, how the dismantling of the welfare state is preventing disabled people getting the support they need, and what it's really like to be disabled in austerity Britain today. But first, a roundup of what's been happening in visibility in March. In the US, members of the disability rights group ADAPT have been camped outside the residence of Dr Scott Gottlieb, the commissioner for the FDA. They are protesting the use of shock devices as a harmful so-called treatment for disabled people at the Judge Rottenberg Educational Centre in Massachusetts. The electric shocks to the skin are used to deter aggressive or self-injury behaviour, but in 2016 the FDA proposed banning their use because they present an unreasonable and substantial risk of illness or injury. Despite this, the devices are still being used, predominantly against children, and ADAPT say they should be able to count on the government to protect all disabled Americans from torture and they won't leave until Gottlieb takes action. In the UK, the CEO of Heathrow Airport has caused anger by saying that disabled passengers are not entitled to compensation if they find themselves left on a plane for longer than 20 minutes after the last abled passenger has disembarked. He was forced to respond to criticism by the BBC's Frank Gardner, who was left on board his flight for a shocking 100 minutes after landing at the airport, thanks to ground staff misplacing his wheelchair. The incident has rekindled the debate on just how accessible travel really is for disabled passengers around the globe. In Egypt, a record number of disabled people were able to turn out to cast their votes in the country's three-day presidential elections. During the election, the Human Rights Department at the Ministry of Interior provided wheelchairs to those who needed them, and the Crisis Management Centre for the Ministry engaged women's police forces to help elderly women and women with special needs to cast their votes. This month has also been Women's History Month, so I have a question for you. What do the woman who freed 750 slaves in one raid, the first US woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize, the charity worker beatified by the Pope in 1609, and France's most celebrated stage actress have in common? That's right, they were all disabled. As part of Women's History Month, I've been collecting stories about the badass disabled women forgotten by history, and let me tell you, there are a hell of a lot of them. You can find more of their stories on the Invisibility Today Twitter, and I'll be updating a series of articles on Medium over the next few weeks, so keep looking out for them. And in the month we lost Professor Stephen Hawking, disabled scientist, activist and anti-capitalist, this episode is dedicated both to his memory and to the thousands of disabled people still fighting for the kind of support he was lucky enough to receive. One of the main campaigning groups for disability support in the UK today is Disabled People Against Cuts. And a couple of weeks ago I was lucky enough to interview Gail Ward, the head of their North East branch, about life in austerity Britain today. So today I'm joined by Gail from Disabled People Against Cuts and we are going to be talking about what it's like to be disabled in austerity Britain and the campaigns they are involved in to make life a bit better for all of us. Welcome to the show, Gail. Uh, so first of all, tell us a little bit about Disabled People Against Cuts. What do you campaign for and uh, how did you get involved? Well, basically, Disabled People Against Cuts, we basically are uh, a direct action campaigning group to raise awareness of uh, the austerity cuts that are affecting disabled people and about making sure that disabled people's human rights are met, their social care needs are met, and any support that they may need. 
and basically I got involved when I needed support myself and bit by bit I got more and more involved really and I run the North East Group for them. So one of the big campaigns at the moment is focused on universal credit. Can you explain for people who don't know what universal credit is and who it will affect? It will virtually affect everyone except the state pensioner who doesn't claim housing benefits or get any sort of form of state support. Universal credit is supposed to be a simpler system where it culminates six benefits into one, making the payment process very simple, very easy to administer. It saves the government money, which is what they wanted to do. However, it's turned into a right nightmare, and the actual policy itself is very discriminatory, particularly against those with mental health conditions. What would uh, universal credit mean for disabled people and people with mental health conditions? Universal credit means that you have an assessment process. When job seekers, income support and the various benefits that are being shifted across, like working tax credits, child tax credits, housing benefits and so forth, they will then get an invitation letter when universal credit becomes full service in their area. Because the live service has already been running targeted primarily at single people, but now it's being rolled out across the country nationally and that is going to affect a hell of a lot of people and the policy is just hideous it's barbaric policy i've ever seen a government drum up in the 60 years i've been alive what is it about the policy that is so barbaric the conditionality is extremely harsh it is designed deliberately to target those on the bottom end of the ladder in society whether it's low income because that's another thing, one thing that Universal Credit hasn't been portrayed by in the press is that it's for people that are in work on low pay as well, and, and those on zero-hour contracts. So therefore, this policy is a complete game-changer because most other state benefits accommodate people who are looking for work, have disabilities or caring responsibilities, whether it be a, a single mum or a carer looking after an elderly relative. Pensioners, generally speaking, are, have always been left out of that equation. They've never really suffered in, in that. But under this new policy, some of them will. Uh, that has been the real game changer, is including people in work. And if they don't comply with the conditionality that they've been given, they are then going to get sanctioned. And uh, you mentioned that it's quite bad for people who suffer with poor mental health as well. And I think I read earlier that as part of the health and work programme, they're bringing in compulsive treatment through job centre therapists, which if claimants don't take the treatment, they face being sanctioned as well. Yes. IAT, as it's called, it is going to be particularly harsh. The issue is the government and previous governments have never, ever halved the disability gap because they haven't come to grasp the fact that people can be disabled and can't work but there are people most people are chronically ill as well as disabled and most chronically ill people don't know what it's going to be from one day to the next mm -hmm. mental health they're already battling their demons and these people are dying in their thousands 
Well, we've just seen the report released uh, in the last couple of days, haven't we, of how badly they failed mental health patients and how many people have died, even in recent years. Yes, I mean, there's over 100,000 people, according to government statistics, up to 2015 that had passed away. Now, some people would argue, well, they would have done it anyway. Rubbish. Because if a person is suffering severe mental health or agoraphobia and things like that, when that brown envelope comes through the door, they go into meltdown. They panic. It's a normal, natural reaction. God, I've got another assessment. The impact of that on their mental health is considerable. And when they were taken to court and we beat the DWP, then they also tried to stall us from implementing changes that have been asked by numerous reviews. They all have been recommendations which they have failed to implement. And this is having a massive effect, even on people with seriously chronic health. The stress of these assessments are causing people's health to deteriorate. Absolutely. And I think Disabled People Against Cuts were also instrumental in the UN being forced to recognise human rights violation of disabled people in the UK today. And it seems, certainly from my perspective, that since August, the UK government hasn't done much to address these concerns whatsoever. Well, they won't address them because as far as the government is concerned, you see, if you're collecting state money, then that person happens to be mentally unstable or very chronically ill. You know, we've had people with cancer die. They've even sent out sanctions for people in a blooming coma in hospital. We've had cancer patients. We've had heart attacks in an assessment centre. And they're sweeping it under the carpet. Because if the public actually found out and knew what was really going on, the streets would be full. Because decent people wouldn't put up with it, let alone disabled people. Anybody who's a decent, right-minded thinking person would turn around and say, this is absolutely horrendous, this must stop. Absolutely, and it comes back, I think, to um, the kind of dog whistle media portrayals that we've had, which has unfortunately masked the real problems while looking for a scapegoat. And currently the scapegoat are the least fortunate of us. Yeah, but what what most people don't get is that 43% of the welfare state budget, the benefit budget, as they called it, because that was renamed deliberately as well. I prefer to call it Social Security because that is exactly what it is. It is a safety net for people when they fall on hard times. If you are unfortunate to be born disabled or you become chronically ill, I'm afraid that's just the way it is. And this government, since 1982, and successive governments, have continued with the blame game. And the insurance industry is very much behind it. Now, what really get, gets me more about this is the harm that it's causing. I've lost friends, personally. We've lost Debbie Jolly, who was one of the founders of Deepak, who was an absolute excellent lady, who died far too young. We've lost Sophie Partridge and many others. So our friends are dying around us. Now, in some cases, you can't prevent death. But the government's excuse is that 
these people would have died anyway, so you can't prove a causal link. Well, that's just absolute rubbish, because I can bring up one case in particular, and that was Karen Sherlock, which was widely reported through the mainstream press. This lady was very, very chronically ill, and she had got multiple disabilities, and they refused her state assistance. And it was only after the stress and strain of having to go through the appeal process time and time again. This poor lady died at a very young age, leaving children behind. And she should be here with us now. And I promised Karen we would fight on and I will do it. I will keep that promise. And quite right too. I It is astounding. I think so many people in the disabled and chronically ill communities have, have similar stories. I, I, I don't think many people don't know someone um, who's been lost in the intervening years while this goes on. Did the government ever respond to her particular case? Has anyone ever thrown up their hands? They, they do the standard pat line, which is, we're really terribly sorry to hear about this, but you can't put that down to... Uh, and she wasn't denied benefit because she won her appeal 10 days later. Try telling that to her kids. Try telling that to somebody's mother or father or somebody's daughter or son that's lost a parent or a child because these people are literally killing people. State-sanctioned killing. It's state murder. Obviously, the campaign against universal credit is ongoing. If you could campaign for the one major change would the overhaul be different how would how would you like to see the government handle this crisis universal credit is a dangerous policy and i mean dangerous in and i don't use that word lightly it is dangerous it's predominantly against women and children and it is causing great concern and disparity because of the test and learn process they see a problem they plug the hole See another problem? There's a hole. You know, if you've got a leaky roof, you don't plug the hole. You have the roof redone. Basically, universal credit should be scrapped. It should be stopped and it should be scrapped. It's a horrendous policy and it's going to cause considerable misery right across the board, including those that are in work. Because there's people in work who haven't got a clue that they're standing on the train track waiting for the driver to slow down and the train is speeding at them at 120 miles an hour. Universal credit has been paused at the moment while the government reviews it, but I think many people, and I'm certainly sure Deepak are of the opinion, that the only way to make this policy good is to scrap it. It can't go through even with changes. Well, that's our stance. Uh, It's my personal stance, but I know for a fact the amount of money that they have wasted on this pet project with IDS and Lord Freud and... You know, even Frank Field, when he he was uh, part of the Tory benches at one point, they all designed ESO and Universal Credit. They all knew that it was going to cause problems. The problem is now, most ministers get their little sound bites and do what the whip says. They do not read the policy in full unless they're in the Department of Work and Pensions. And even then, they have limited knowledge. And I've spoken with Debbie Abrams. She's a lovely woman, don't get me wrong. She does care, but they are not going to abandon this policy. They have spent £15.8 billion on this project and wasted God knows how many other things where they've tried to bring it in. 
The health and work programme is an integral part of universal credit and people don't realise it. IAT is an integral part of it. And the online process is a deliberate thing because lots of people, particularly the older generations like myself, are not internet savvy. So if they're not internet savvy, they can be flannelled, they have to go down the job centre and they have to fill in the online form or they can do it over the phone if they've got no internet access. However, how are they supposed to sign into the universal job match every day? Some people in society will turn around and say, well, you're getting state money, what are you complaining about? And I've heard it time and time again. And, and I've said to them, society is lacking humanity and compassion now. If you remember, way back at the Tory conference, under Thatcher, she said there is no th such thing as society. And she wasn't kidding. And it made everybody individuals. And you can achieve whatever you want. And that is exactly the society she has bred. Unfortunately, they left compassion, care and humanity out of that equation. And people have become utterly selfish. They want to get where they want to get. They will stamp over the next person that they can to get there. Now, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. That's the way business is nowadays. But we all need to stop and think about people who are being made homeless. They've had the money stopped, so the landlord throws them out. How can we sit there and walk idly by, turn a blind eye, when homelessness has risen over 200% across the country? We've got people sleeping out in two foot of snow. You wouldn't see that even in Russia, because people on the street have been dying for years, and everybody don't talk about it. And this is what frustrates me more than anything, to be honest, because we're all having to knuckle down, belts are tighter, everybody's wages are being cut back and cut back because the pay rises, the public sector have been really hit. We've got the NHS on its knees because it's been publicly starved of funds and council services being starved of funds from central government. So they're having to cut back. Everybody's got their nose to the grinder trying to keep their heads above water so they are completely in a blinkered bubble away from what the reality on the ground is because by the time they get home from work, had the tea, put the kids to bed, they're knackered and they get up and they just repeat the cycle the next day. When you're in the thick of this and you can see all the fire cuts, the police cuts, all the things that are damaged to the fabric of this society, then we are in trouble. We are broken bricks. And I think it comes back to, like you say, Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society, but it seems to have bred into a much more long-lasting attitude that people only matter insofar as they can make money for other people. Yes. And if you can't make money, then it, it turns out nobody's going to listen. If you're not productive, you're worthless. Mm -hmm. That is exactly the bottom line. Cash is king. That's why they're talking about automation. It's not because they're trying to do anything that to save people and, you know, this presented front, well, you know, it means you'll have to work less hours. No, it won't. They'll put you out of a job because the robot can produce 10 times as much as what you can. And who wins? The employers and the government because the point is coming in. And this leads us quite nicely into uh, universal basic income, which sounds on the surface as a brilliant idea, but actually when you drill down into it, has very similar problems to the ones you just described. What are the issues you see with universal basic income in relation to this problem? Well, universal basic income is basically 
and there has always been an illegal project. And, you know, frankly, it isn't going to wash. Income is generally set by those in power. And, as you know, people's income has dropped dramatically. And we pay out to our society people in it far less than some other countries who have got a lot less money. The bar is always set too low. And the same will apply with basic income. Basic income, in principle, it's a great idea. On paper, in practice, under a Tory government or a Labour government, it's not going to cut the mustard because their idea is to cut money so that the state get more money in for less going out. It's always been a case of housekeeping. Now, one could argue you've got to cut your cloth accordingly. I would agree to that to a certain or lesser degree. But when you're keeping people beyond, below the poverty line and well below the poverty line compared to other European countries, that is keeping people in abject pot- poverty. Austerity is a lie. It is planned poverty. If you could send one message to the current government and one to the opposition, in fact, as well, what would it be? We need to sit down and you need to include us. We don't want another charity or somebody talking for us. We've got mouths, we've got intelligence. Bits of us might not work and function properly, but we've got intelligence and we've got the brains to be able to take this forward. And we do talk to the opposition ministers. The the Tories seem to be running scared of us because none of them will speak to anybody, as you know, because even Theresa May won't even speak to the press. I would say to all ministers out there, stop and think, because... They don't circulate in ordinary circles. My argument is, is if you've got an ounce of common sense and you can see that these policies are causing considerable harm, then any responsible government would turn around and say, look, we've had 100,000 deaths, this can't continue. They're saying that it doesn't happen. We've got coroner's reports, which we was presented to the UN to tell them that the coroner stated quite categorically that the incidence on any particular case was inadvertently, or indirectly, should I say, not inadvertently, indirectly contributory factor to that person's death. And this CBT programme is going to stop people going to their job centres, it's going to stop people going to their GP surgeries, because they're also putting them there, and in their libraries, they will not go to the doctors, not get the medication, that is going to make them seriously unwell, because they have this fear, well, we call it the brown envelope syndrome. As soon as that thing is, they just literally fall apart and they are absolutely terrified. And that's what this government is doing. They are terrifying the disabled community. For people who care and who want to get involved and who are able to get involved, where can they go to learn more about this and how can people help? People can help. We don't exclude able-bodied people because there's a lot of disabled people that would come on actions and get involved more if they had the support. Anybody that is out there that's going to be listening to this, if you can support disabled people or your fellow man, go and check next door, see if the old year next door's got a dinner. Go and check that they're all right. These are the community-spirited things that decent human beings do. You should check to see that your neighbour's okay. I mean, I hope Jeremy does get in. He came very close. I hope he does get in. Nothing would give me greater pleasure to see that man walk through the door. 
I don't agree with everything that Labour do. I would be just as critical of Labour as what I would be of the Tory party or any other party. Because at the end of the day, we're all human beings. And if we don't look after each other, then what does that say about us? Well, I think for people who are at the uh, the thin end of the wedge currently, it isn't about party politics. It is no. about help. Survival. That's what it's about. Survival. It is survival of the fittest and stopping yourself sinking to the bottom of the pool where everybody else treads over you. I think people need to wake up. People are not lazy. You're always going to get the odd chancer. People keep going on about fraud. Fraud is less than 1%. Well, it's actually 0.9% at this moment, and that includes department error. All politicians, they get their expenses paid for their office, they get their travel expenses paid, they have a second home paid for, you pay for all their redecoration, you pay for all their gas and electric, their telephone bills, and the bar bills. That is the taxpayer's nemesis, because we are funding that, and why should they be lording it up when everybody else is working 50, 60 hours a week just to try and pay the mortgage? We should all remember we're all one wage packet away from poverty. And I'll just implore to people, come and join us on our protest. Talk to us. We're not the uh, demons that we're painted to be. We're ordinary people. We've got feelings. Come along. But whatever you do, don't let the, this government or any other government take away your welfare state. For anyone who wants to join DPAC in their fight against austerity and universal credit, you can find details of their protests on their website at www.dpac.uk.net, as well as a template letter to send to your MP. If you're able to, I would urge you all to join them at their demonstrations and send your letter to Parliament to register your concerns. Now we come to our final section of the show, shining some visibility on the disabled creators, fundraisers and activists who've been doing some exceptional work this month. In literary visibility, two incredible books by disabled women were released in March. The first, Doing Harm by Maya Dusenberry, examines sexism at every level in medicine and reveals an ingrained cultural distrust of women at every stage of medical treatment. And the second, Ask Me About My Uterus by Abby Norman, is a more personal account of years of unexplained pain she later discovered was caused by endometriosis, a disease that takes an average of seven to eight years for women to be diagnosed with. In fundraising visibility, there's still time for you to donate to the film Becoming Incurable, which follows the stories of three disabled and chronically ill people and aims to educate the public about the growing narrative behind the diagnosis of a chronic incurable illness. You can find the page to donate at www.seedandspark.com forward slash fund forward slash becoming incurable hashtag story. Also in fundraising news, Imani Barbarin, a writer and activist who writes from the perspective of a black woman with cerebral palsy, has just launched her Patreon to help her produce more content and make her website Crutches and Spice into something even bigger. You can become a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash Imani Barbarin forward slash overview. And, as next month is Autism Acceptance Month, you could make a timely purchase on Bonfire for one of the stunning Autism is Magical shirts by Sky. To show your autistic pride or your solidarity as an ally, you can find Sky's designs at www.bonfire.com forward slash autism dash is dash magical. 
And on social media this month, a new life-affirming hashtag created by Andrew, or at Menaju, as you might know him from Twitter, has been flooding the platform with the evidence of the happiness we find in our disabled lives. So, if you need some positive reinforcement and visibility on this or any other month, I strongly suggest you check out the hashtag DisabledJoy. Finally, in news for March, this month marked the sad loss of Professor Stephen Hawking, world-renowned physicist, disability activist and staunch defender of the NHS. As members of the disabled community, we have a lot to thank Professor Hawking for. In his status as one of the most high-profile disabled people of all time, he provided us with a priceless level of positive representation in science and the media. But in his sad death, he's also revealed the ableism still inherent in our societies. From comments and cartoons celebrating that death had freed him from his wheelchair, to an astounding remark by journalist John Humphreys that he may have been cut some slack by other physicists because of his ALS, Professor Hawking's death was poorly handled by media commentators and shows how far we still have to go to achieve true equality. In his memory, then, I would like us to remember that Professor Hawking wasn't just a scientist, he was an activist. And before his death, he was involved in a lawsuit aimed at blocking Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt's plans for the NHS. Let us fight on in Professor Hawking's place and let his legacy be not just a deeper understanding of our universe, but also a better world for disabled people, regardless of our wealth, our influence or our success. For now, though, we've reached the end of the second Invisibility podcast, and I'd like to thank you all for your incredible support so far. If there's a disability topic, activist, creator or news story you'd like to see featured here next month, you can contact me on Twitter at VisibilityToday or email VisibilityToday at gmail.com. For now, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in April for another look at what's in visibility then.